Hello and thanks for joining us for another Beyond Biotech podcast and this is number 11 and it's also the last one in August and it's a bumper episode today but more on that later. I'm Jim Cornell from thebiotech.eu and I have to say I'm looking forward to the weekend. It's been a very strange week and I think the icing on the cake, so to speak, was the community centre in our village. It's not used that often and it just happens to be right across the street from my home. It used to be the village school and this week the alarm went off. No big deal there other than the fact that it was a fault and someone came out to fix it at 8 o'clock at night. And then as soon as they left, it went off again, and someone came out to turn it off at about 1.15 in the morning. And please bear in mind that this thing is loud. It has a range of about 5 kilometres. The next night, it went off again. And at 8pm, just as the sport came on the TV, they came out to fix it and shut off the power to the entire village. As I mentioned, it's a packed show today, so I should cut the small talk and tell you about it. The first exciting news is there is a new feature at the end of every podcast, and it's going to be a look at some of the financial news around biotech. It's a weekly conversation with someone at real estate service company JLL in the US. Now, normally the feature will be us chatting with Travis McCready, but as you know, tis the season for holidays, and so to kick it off this week, we have a quick conversation with Robert Coughlin. As for the interviews, there are four of them, and five guests. And they are Miguel Martin Alvarez, postdoctoral fellow in the Cancer Science Unit at IRB Barcelona, Hubert Chen, head of clinical development at Crystal Biotech, Ivan Liachko, CEO of Phase Genomics, and two people at Ilia Pharma, CEO and co-founder Evelina Vogachel, and Chief Financial Officer Oscar Lund. And that means it's time for our quick recap of the news that you may have missed over at labiotech.eu. And it's another bumper week too, so maybe not exactly a quick recap. Vederis emerged from stealth to start an HTT trial. Roche launched a COVID-19 test to detect emerging variants of interest. The Bio Innovation Institute supported three startups. And Epivario is looking to biotech for PTSD treatment. We had an article on shifting hiring practices, a drug to treat rare kidney diseases being reviewed by the EMA, and a Belgian mRNA company has received millions in new funding. A COVID-19 vaccine less sensitive to mutations is being developed in Sweden. BioAge is partnering with Age Labs to study healthy life length. And Amgen announced top-line results from its biosimilar phase 3 study. Northwest Biotherapeutics Pediatric Investigation Plan was approved by the MHRA. Freedom Biosciences exited stealth with a $10.5 million financing to develop mental health treatments. And novel nanotechnology supercharges the immune system molecules to fight cancer. Related to numbers, we had articles on five industrial biotech companies making Japan more sustainable and five clean tech companies in New Zealand making the country more green. 
The Parkinson's Foundation and Parkinson's UK are working together to drive drug development. Gate Neurosciences emerged from stealth to tackle CNS diseases, and hopefully they'll be on the podcast in the next couple of weeks. And 180 Life Sciences announced enrolment of the first patient in a frozen shoulder treatment trial. Constructive Bio launched with $15 million to re-engineer biology. The Institute for Bioscience and Biotechnology Research was awarded $6.9 million to work on a hepatitis C vaccine. And the first gene therapy for adults with severe haemophilia was approved by the European Commission. Biotech stocks enjoyed a brief rally with uncertain winds ahead. There's hope for children with chronic graft-versus-host disease, as Johnson & Johnson had a drug approved. And 3T Biosciences launched with $40 million of financing. A new drug is boosting options for rheumatoid arthritis treatment. A Belgian university spin-off, Astrivax, raised €30 million for its vaccine platform, with the first target being yellow fever. A new study's findings could lead to new anti-cancer drugs, and you can read all of these, and lots more, at labiotech.eu. It's great that we've started getting suggestions for guests on the podcast as well, so please do keep those coming. You can just contact us via the website. We do prefer to keep the interviews news-related as opposed to just promoting companies, so please do bear that in mind. And that brings us to the first guest, and we're going to kick things off with Ivan Liachko, CEO of Phase Genomics, a company looking closely at the interactions between viruses and bacteria. Best way to start is if you could give me some background on Phase Genomics, I guess. Sure. So Phase Genomics is founded in Seattle. Sort of what we do at Phase is we develop new genomic tools for clinical and research applications. Pretty much everything we do is centered around a specific technology called proximity ligation sequencing. And we exploit that tech for a number of applications, both in the clinical space, in the research space. Everything we do has to do with genome assembly, genome analysis, discovery, and genomics and metagenomics, which is the study of microbiome and infectious disease. Could you explain a little bit about proximity ligation? Sure. So what we figured out is we figured out this this sequencing trick that lets you capture a unique kind of genetic information. Essentially, what this technology does is it captures which sequences are physically close together inside of a cell, which is a little bit different than when you think about genome sequencing, you're thinking about sequencing the DNA molecule, the letters, right, ATCGs. But what this does is this tells you not just the sequences, but also which sequences are physically close together. And that information at first may sound a little bit quirky, and what would you do with that? But it actually solves a number of really critical sort of blind spots we have in the genomic space. So one thing that it does is it tells you, you know, when I when I talk to lay people, I kind of say, you know, genome assembly is a little bit like uh, assembling a, the world's worst jigsaw puzzle, trying to put genomes together, and you don't know what the puzzle looks like, right? There's all these pieces, some of them are identical and things like that. But what if you knew which pieces were touching each other? So if you knew which pieces were touching each other or how far away they were from each other, now you can put the puzzle together, right? You can reconstruct the whole thing with software, and that's what we do. So the other angle, which I think is probably going to be more uh, relevant for our conversation is uh, when you're dealing with a mixed community, like a microbiome sample, you're trying to reconstruct genomes for a bunch of microbes that live together. And so it's no longer 
a single jigsaw puzzle. You're now taking, you know, a hundred, a thousand jigsaw puzzles. You're dumping them all together and mixing the pieces. And now you don't even know which ones, sort of which pieces belong to which puzzle, etc. And wouldn't it be helpful to know which ones were touching each other at the beginning, right? Because the ones they were touching, they started out inside the same organism, inside the same puzzle, so to speak. And so what our technology does is it allows us to take, amongst other things, it allows us to take a mixed microbial community and separate apart all the genomes that were in it without culturing. And that's a big problem in the field right now, because when you're dealing with microbes, you know, you're kind of stuck having to culture everything. You have to, cult, you have to grow them all individually on Petri dishes, and it's very laborious. If you're chasing a bacteriophage, a virus that infects one of the bacteria, you have to figure out who the bacteria is, you have to grow it up, you have to culture them all independently. And that's really, really hard because, you know, you're dealing with thousands of microbes, a lot of which don't want to grow independently, et cetera. And so what our technology does is it sort of, it provides this extra layer of information that can be used to basically short circuit a lot of these sort of traditional laborious discovery methods. It essentially uses regular sequencing to tell you um, which genomes sort of separate the genomes apart out of a mixed community to say where the viruses are, to say where antibiotic resistance genes are coming from, et cetera. So in terms of moving one step beyond this what are the implications in terms of utilizing this information for conditions, diseases? Right. So there are a lot of things you could do with this information. So one of the our most recent published project with the Gates Foundation and the NIH, what we've essentially doing is we're assembling the world's largest virus host interactome data set. The most numerous form of life in the world is viruses. As I said, it's very difficult to identify them and their hosts in natural communities because you have to do it all manually. And our technology circumvents that and allows us to just pile up all these phage host interactions at the same time. The reason why that's useful is because right now there's a big movement in the infectious disease space to try to circumvent the problem of antibiotic resistance. We humans have been having this century-long arms race with bacteria with using antibiotics. Right. And so there's this rise of resistant microbes and resistant infections that are killing a lot of people. In fact, by, you know, they estimate by something like 2040, 2050, antibiotic resistant infections are going to kill more people than cancer. And so people are looking for different ways of managing microbial infections and just microbial communities in general. And because bacteriophages are essentially predators that infect and kill bacteria. You can use them as a therapy. And so, so there's been a lot of interest lately in what's called phage therapy, which is using phages to kill off either specific pathogens or in some other way modulate microbial communities. So that's certainly part of it because what our technology does is it allows you to figure out sort of which phages to use to target after specific microbes. So we're collecting this large repository, and the the idea is the sort of the large goal is that we will essentially train AI models to figure out what causes phages to choose hosts. And once you have that kind of information, you can design specific therapies against specific conditions. Maybe it's using phages to kill one particular pathogen. Maybe it's something more complex where you, if you have, you know, a whole community of microbes that need to be hit with multiple phages at the same time. So these are the kinds of things that we're working on. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's pretty sobering when you mention about microbial resistance and the number of people that may die from that by 2040, 2050. It's definitely an area of interest and of great importance. 
Yeah. Well, and we hope that, you know, one of the reasons why we're so excited about this project is that we think that our tech offers a really unique value in combating AMR in the future. And so it's beyond sort of research applications. We think this will close a really important gap in our knowledge and allow us to develop tools that can really be used to, you know, to make a mark on the AMR defense field. Was the end goal for you to develop those techniques to do this, or is it to supply information for other companies to go out and tackle it? You know, we're always looking for partners. There are certainly people who specialize in, for example, manufacturing of phages. And so we think that this information will be super valuable to them. Whether or not we're also going to start manu manufacturing them ourselves or we'll do it through partnerships is still an open question. This project is fairly young, but certainly both are possible. So can you Give me a bit of an idea of what the project is that you're working on and how far along you are with that. Sure. Well, so we've been sort of doing this work with clients and collaborators for years now. And so we actually have quite a large repository, probably well, the world's largest repository of virus host interaction data. And this new project involves us collecting wastewater samples, human fecal samples, other kind of microbiome samples in large numbers and processing them through the platform to kind of aggregate as much data as we can. And then use the data sets that we get to use for specific purposes. Maybe it's predicting phages against specific pathogens. Or one project we have right now is we're looking at fecal transplants, which are sort of this very effective treatment for specific diseases like colitis. But people don't really know why they work as well as they do. And we think that there is a large component of basically phage biology that modulates these communities when the transplants happen. And that's been largely overlooked by the community simply because they don't have the tools. We think in addition to kind of targeting specific pathogens, we'll be able to do other things with this technology, which is deploy sort of complex phage mixtures to target more sophisticated conditions, not just sort of single pathogen infections. And what kind of timescales are you looking at for the things that you're doing? Sure. Well, it sort of depends on what we're looking for. We, we definitely expect some of the first fruits to be seen within the next year. But because this is sort of a continuing sort of rolling project, it's sort of many projects happening simultaneously with having their own timelines. Uh, we publish many papers all the time because we're working with so many different researchers and partners. We're thinking that, you know, we're definitely going to see something within the next year. But in addition to that, there are gonna, there's a continuous flow of papers and publications and discoveries coming out all the time. And I guess you just got funding not that long ago. What does that mean for the company? Well, the funding means that we can focus on sort of specific large projects, right, without having to worry about how to fund them. So the funding from the Gates Foundation, what it allows us to do is it allows us to process, you know, vast numbers of wastewater samples from around the world without worrying who's going to pay for it. We're very happy with it. We hope more will come because there are so many things you can do with this technology beyond just sort of wastewater surveillance and sewage and fecal kind of projects. So we're going around the world, we're collecting samples from everything, from coral reefs, from cattle, from soil, from agricultural places. And you can imagine it's something that can be easily expanded through sort of all facets of biology. One of the hardest things then would be to know what you're going to focus on just because you have so many options. It's true. It's a little bit of a kid in a candy store type situation. But I think we have a pretty good pragmatic team to sort of think about which are the, the lowest hanging fruit from a commercialization perspective while also not ignoring kind of like the big lofty ideas for the long term as well. And you mentioned that you were just over in Europe, but that was, I assume, work related. It must be nice to be able to spread the word in person again, as opposed to online. 
Yeah, you know, the ability to track antibiotic resistance and viruses and plasmids within microbial communities is a huge bottleneck in the space and all of microbiology. We were at a conference, we go to conferences all the time, but particularly this one, this was the International Society of Microbial Ecologists, where people study microbial communities from all around, sort of all over the place. And this kind of data really closes a very important blind spot for folks. That's pretty much all the questions that I had. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? This is one of these projects that sort of spans beyond a particular commercial application. So we're always looking for partners. We're always looking for collaborators. We're trying to expand the footprint of this work beyond sort of this one project. We're doing a lot of work moving towards pandemic response, pandemic preparedness, being able to predict the next pandemic before it happens, detecting pathogens out of next generation sequencing data in ways that are not possible with uh, sort of conventional tools of the day. And so we're always looking for other folks to get involved. And if somebody, if one of your listeners is interested, reach out. Next, we'll go to Spain and look at a recent study that says gene editing with CRISPR can lead to toxicity and genome instability. To tell us about the study and what it means is Miguel Martín Álvarez, postdoctoral fellow in the Cancer Science Unit at IRB Barcelona. I am uh, working in IRB Barcelona, which is a research institution founded uh, in 2005 by the Catalonian government and the University of Barcelona. And it's part of the Barcelona Institute of Science and Technology. And in IRB Barcelona, there are, it's structured in three research programs, aging and metabolism, mechanisms of disease, and then uh, the one in which my lab is placed, which is cancer science program. And this research center performs work as research uh, in an international environment. And I'm very happy working there. And what about the CRISPR and gene editing? Could you tell me something about that? Yeah, in our lab, we mainly use a, a version of uh, CRISPR uh, gene editing, which is the CRISPR knockout screens. This consists in, uh, in a given cancer cell line culture. We inactivate in parallel almost all human genes, around 20,000 uh, human genes one per cell clone. So the idea is that after several days, uh, there is selection on, on each specific cell clone based on which gene was inactivated. So those cells in which the inactivated gene is an essential gene for, for the cell fitness uh, will eventually, at the end of the experiment, will be a smaller proportion of the cell culture than what would be expected uh, with normal growth, which uh, we measure, uh, the proxy with which uh, we measure this is uh, by cell counts. Uh, if there are cell less counts, less cell counts in the culture, it means that the inactivity gene was essential. Then there are genes that are not specially relevant for the cell fitness or not as much. So the proportion these cells in the culture will be larger. And then there is also the other end of the, the spectrum, which is the tumor suppressor genes, which if, such as P53, for example, which if they are inactivated, then we expect that the cells which had these genes inactivated will, will be a, a larger 
proportion of the cell culture than what would be expected because they have an advantage. So this way we can determine which genes are essential, which is the main interest in, in this experiment is, is uh, which genes are essential either across all genetic backgrounds, although this is more uh, quite established because of uh, massive studies like Achilles uh, or Project SCORE, which they uh, do CRISPR screenings across many different tumor cell lines. Uh, so we know which sets of genes are essential uh, in any cell, more or less. And then it's especially interesting which genes are become essential in the context of a of a specific genetic background, such as uh, inactivation or overexpression of specific genes that can happen in particular tumors. So, if a particular tumor uh, contains a given gene that is inactivated, then it can uh, some gene that wasn't essential originally can become essential in this cell line. Or also, uh, well, this and this is uh, interesting because then you can uh, design drug treatments that target these genes that make a tumor more susceptible to to the inactivation of other genes or to the, the genetic background that uh, this tumor has. CRISPR has been sort of hailed as a great advance in treatments. And I wonder if you could tell me a bit about the cell toxicity and genome instability that you've been working on. Yeah, so CRISPR knockout CRISPR screen knockout depends on or relies on the gene inactivation in CRISPR knockout relies on uh, double strand breaks, which is at a given point of a gene that is targeted by the guide RNAs in the CRISPR system. Uh, endonuclease, which is typically Cas9, performs a, a cut in the uh, of the double strand. This causes the double strand break. And the idea is that upon repair of this double strand break, uh, eventually uh, there is the introduction in this in this region of a insertion or, or a deletion, small insertion or deletion that causes a frame shift of the coding sequence, and this inactivates the gene. So the problem is that double strand breaks by themselves per se are toxic to the cell. For instance. There will be several mechanisms, but one that is better known is that double stand breaks activate, well, uh, the, the presence of a double stand break activates uh, the P53 pathway, which leads to uh, cell cycle arrest or apoptosis, uh, which, of course, uh, reduces cell, cell fitness or kills it uh, completely. It has been seen that double stand breaks are more toxic uh, in cell lines that express P53, so this holds. So one concern was that maybe P53 uh, wild-type cells are not suitable for doing essentiality CRISPR screens. There was some controversy in last years uh, because they said that the cell cycle arrest or apoptosis of double stand breaks triggering P53 wouldn't allow cells uh, to grow at all in the culture and thus uh, wouldn't be informative. But after that, it uh, has been seen that overall it's uh, suitable to do CRISPR screening in, for essentiality in P53 wild-type cells. And in our study, we confirmed this, like uh, the ability to detect common essential genes is not 
is not reduced by the 53 status of the cell. But what we see instead is that it might reduce power to detect uh, conditional essentiality, as I was saying, the type of essentiality that I was uh, explaining before. Also, the most important finding in, in our paper is that double strand toxicity that is due to PCC3 at least uh, seems to vary depending on the, the region of the genome uh, where it, it takes place, the double strand break, mainly depending on the, the nature of the chromatin that is cut. So namely, if it's active chromatin, or, uh, open and active chromatin, the double strand break toxicity seems to be higher. And also, it seems that the pathway of repair of double strand breaks, uh, which, uh, well, there are different pathways, but the main one is the non-homologous joining, which is more active in euchromatin, active chromatin, also seems to increase the toxicity of double strand breaks. We don't know the mechanism, but this is the idea that active chromatin and repaired by non-homologous joining tends to be more toxic when a double stand break is performed there than elsewhere in the genome. So I guess this isn't saying that CRISPR is bad, it's just something that people should be, or researchers should be aware of? Sure, it's, it's something to be aware of. It doesn't invalidate or... Uh, if this is uh, accounted for, should be there should be no, no problem for the future of this technology yet, but of course there is the concern that since double stand breaks are more, well, uh, trigger P53 and causing cell toxicity, there is the concern that this could cause selection of P53 mutant cells, which uh, something that we don't want because this basically is, uh, I mean, this is the most uh, mutated gene in tumors, like uh, its loss uh, is a, a very known cancer driver. So for the future potential in vivo treatments with CRISPR in cancer patients, this would be a, a major concern that uh, the treatment could uh, select for pk 3 mutants in the patient. So the idea is that more Research is needed in, in, on this topic, on measuring the differential toxicity of P53, uh, mediated toxicity of double stand breaks, uh, depending on, on the nature of the, of the region that is targeted by CRISPR, to lower as maximum uh, this P53 toxicity. So if that's accounted for, uh, then shouldn't be that much of a problem. And so what kind of studies still need to be done on this to explain it more? And, and is that something that you'll be doing in your own research? So the P53 toxicity confounds gene essentiality more in, uh, in some genes than in others, because, well, depending on the CRISPR library that you are employing, there will be different points in the gene that are targeted. Uh, if you are not controlling for the environment, the chromatin environment that is uh, targeted, there, there are genes that will have a higher double strand break uh, toxicity than others. And this will, this can uh, hamper studies of, of conditional essentiality because uh, some genes, there will be no, no power to, 
to detect the conditional essentiality because they just happen to to trigger more P3 toxicity. This is uh, some concern. And then is the, the topic of P3 mutant selection. So these are the two main concerns. And, and the, the idea is that the, the study that we have done, it's uh, preliminary in the sense that we have used a standard CRISPR library, the Brunello library, which is designed to target genes. It's not designed to measure the, the toxicity of of double strand bags per se. It's designed to, to measure the, the essentiality of genes. So well, we have kind of bypassed this and, and to try to measure the, the most rough or clear uh, double strand break toxicity differences across the genome, but there is needed a better characterization of, of this differential toxicity. And, and to do that, this should be studied in, in a library specially designed to measure the toxicity of, of, of double stand breaks. So in, in that line, we are working on designing such a library that specifically it, it, it won't target or uh, ideally it won't target any functional region in the genome so to avoid any decrease of fitness uh, that is due to uh, inactivation of functions in the genome of gene expression or, or, or anything. So targeting intergenic regions and introns. And that covers a variety of uh, chromatin landscapes or, of uh, different environments so that we can more thoroughly measure the characteristics of the chromatin that uh, trigger uh, the least the P53 toxicity of a double strand break in order to improve uh, future CRISPR libraries uh, that account for this differential toxicity of P53. Now let's hop on a plane, ignoring all of the lineups and lost baggage, from Barcelona to Sweden to talk about modifying lactic acid bacteria to tackle wounds. We spoke with Ilya Pharma Chief Financial Officer Oscar Lund, but first you will hear from the company's CEO and co-founder, Evelina Vorgechel. Yes, so we were founded in 2016 out of research from Uppsala University and the Swedish University of Agriculture, both here in Uppsala. And we work with a technology platform where we can develop local immunotherapies. Many proteins of the secretome, the ones being secreted, act very locally on the proximal cells and by building up gradients of a couple of hundred micrometers. And we think that this is an untapped space for drug development. And we have solved this by engineering lactic acid bacteria that can continuously produce and deliver these biochemically fragile proteins on site where they're needed. And we work with very well studied and well established proteins. But the innovative part in what we do is that we deliver them from lactic acid bacteria. Obviously, the latest news is about the patents that you've just got. Um, but before we talk about that, I wonder if you could tell me about the use of modified lactic acid bacteria to treat wounds. Um, firstly, how you modify the bacteria themselves and how that is effective in treating wounds. So Skin Wounds is our lead project. So that was the path we identified as the most relevant and most de-risk first project to take forward. 
And uh, when we started to think about this 10 years ago, genetically modified bacteria drugs was very new. It's still new, but not as new. Um, but we had very good data with a chemokine called CXCL12, stromal-derived factor 1 alpha, in another project. So we knew it was very effective in regenerating injured tissue. And then we built this bacteria. And I think what we have overcome challenges is that we can express biofunctional human immune-active proteins from lactobacillus strains. So there are a number of reasons we chose the lactobacillus, uh, and that's we chose the non-human strain, so they wouldn't colonize or adhere uh, either to the skin or GI tract. For skin wounds, it's very easy. You apply the product, which is freeze-dried, and then you resuscitate just prior use. And then when the bacteria come into the wound, they live for about one to two hours and deliver the CXCL12 continuously directly to the wound bed. And then they die off from like exhaustion and also that uh, wound is a very hostile environment to these bacteria. The increase in CXL12 levels will affect the immune cells in the wound. So they will start to produce more TGF-beta, which is the key player in wound healing and this accelerates the healing process. And we have proven this in mice, mini pigs, healthy volunteers, and now we have two phase two studies in patients. So we have one in chronic wounds in patients that's ongoing in Sweden, diabetic foot ulcers. And this trial is fully funded by the European Commission. And then we have the company commercial lead project, which is to treat wounds following surgery in at-risk patients having prediabetes, diabetes or obesity. So they have weeks to months longer healing time following surgery and approximately five times increase in complication rate. So that's a trial that we have an IND approved for and that we are working hard on to start. And how is it applied? Is it like a cream, a gel? It's applied topically and it's a small volume of liquid. So you apply, depending on the wound size, between 50 to 500 microliters. Yeah, we worked a lot to um, have a small volume as possible, making it easy to apply. The wounds, I mean, the skin wounds is obvious, but our second project is ulcers of the intestine. So that has a very different mechanism of action and how we target the immune cells. And you mentioned the fact that when you apply this, the bacteria die quite quickly. If it was a, a bigger wound, like you mentioned, people that were after surgery, does that mean that you have to keep applying that over a certain period of time? For the surgical wound trial, we have one or two applications. So even though the bacteria live there for one to two hours, the change they do to the microenvironment where they deliver more CXL12, this affects the local immune cells, approximately 500 micrometers from the wound edge. And these immune cells start to produce TGF-beta. So it's a multi-step uh, process. And we know that they continue to have higher TGF-beta production over a long time. The actual effect, is it to improve the speed of healing or is it to improve healing so that there's less chance of infection? I mean, what's the, the rationale for its use? So there are a number of different endpoints that we can meet. Uh, time to complete healing is one. 
fraction healed as one for the diabetic foot ulcer study that we're running in Sweden. Then we will look at fraction healed at 26 weeks in the different placebo or active treatment groups. What I am very proud of uh, is that we have for our surgical wound trial created a new composite endpoint that we have agreed with FDA on where we mix these. So that endpoint is complication-free healing. So it has one part that is time to complete healing, but one part that where we have identified the most uh, important wound complications. I mean, for the patient, it doesn't matter. It only matters like if the wound is healed with good quality, right? We have had a very thorough discussion with FDA on this new composite endpoint. And I really look forward to test it now in this trial. If it is as smart as we think it is, then that would be also developing the field for others. I mean, let me pick up on that point. So I'm obviously not a science guy. I'm the, the finance guy in the company. So, uh, you know, for me to understand this, Evelina had to kind of simplify and maybe in some cases oversimplify. But one of the, to me, key points about how it works is that the CXCL12 and these kind of fragile endogenous hormones, they work in gradients. So we need to work on the edge of the body in various places. So uh, choosing wounds as the first place to start is a very obvious choice where you, you create a gradient. Because if you get the immune cells to come to the edge of the wound where the work needs to be done, you get a quicker result, a quicker effect. And uh, again, using the bacteria as the expression system, so these bacteria are, are not, they don't like the human body basically, and they don't have the means to attach. We haven't found any instances of colonization or anything like that. So, so basically what happens is we, we've kind of, the core of the company exists as this intersection of some really cool stuff. So we have the expression system of a bacteria that creates a human protein, which acts in gradients. Using that, we can make the immune system do stuff. It's just incredibly cool. You kind of mentioned in passing the uh, the other applications for this in terms of diabetic and obese patients. The, the other three things that you're working on what kind of stage are you at with with all of those two of those three is the diabetic foot ulcer trial and the surgical wound trial but the third is what me and oscar are working the most with and that is our gi program we have completed the non-clinical development for developing an oral product with this and we have identified a new mechanism of action for where I mean, so we have selected a very specific lactobacillus strain that have certain properties that not all lactobacillus strains have. And it's also non-human, so it doesn't attach to the human body. And then the two co-founders of Ilya have identified that the strain we use, it's called R2LC, can adhere directly to immune cells in the payers' patches in the small intestine. So that's lymphoid tissue where immune cells sort of sample the luminal content. And not all bacteria can adhere to immune cells there, but this one can. And when it has adhered, it upregulates a certain receptor of the immune cells. They upregulate sphingos in one receptor, so more IgA is being produced. When it adheres to these dendrites, it also delivers CXCL12. 
and this induces anti-inflammatory phenotype of immune cells in the small intestine, but also in the colon. And this leads to that we can revert colitis symptoms. And we have shown this in two experimental models, one of chemically induced colitis, which is the most common model to use, but also in ICI, so checkpoint inhibitor induced colitis. And this is a rather new field. And when we sat down and thought through which clinical indications should we start with for this oral product, we have decided to go in and do a first clinical phase 1-2-A trial in patients with ICI-induced colitis. So we are in, in between preclinical and clinical at the moment. So we have started GMP manufacturing and building the IND. Have you done any investigations on other lactobacilli and other strains for any different properties? Uh, yeah, so we have benchmarked uh, in our platform. We have built genetically modified bacteria on different lactobacillus strains and different lactococcus strains. So lactococcus is the most commonly used lactic acid bacteria when it comes to cloning. And there are other companies putting forward a lactococcus. And uh, the lactococcus lactis can adhere to the human mucus uh, mucosal surfaces. It can colonize. So it's, it was not the, the choice for us. I guess the latest news was the four patents that you just received, and I guess they were all slightly different. I wonder if you could tell me about that process and what it means to have all of that finalized. Yeah, so we are uh, at the phase where the portfolio is expanding. But the um, reason we think that these are important news is that uh, China and India are very big markets. They have also very different prosecution systems, and uh, it's been a good learning process for us to getting the patents true in these markets. And what we can say is that it's it's normally very sort of local, the local science that comes up in the investigations. Uh, so it has made us aware of more science, but also helped us understand how our products differentiate. Uh, then, of course, U.S. is our biggest market, and we're very happy to have a second patent approved. And we will continue to file new ones and widen the space. Uh, I like uh, working with patents because it's extremely detailed and extremely science-focused. And many of the times the question we get from the patent Q&A uh, processes we can either use or implement or learn something new from for our drug development. You're clearly working on a lot of stuff. Is there anything else in the pipeline? At the moment, we don't have any research projects, but we have discussions with other parties if, if to start to research programs in fibrosis or lung indications. But we will see how those goes and if we can find means to, to pick them up in, for development in Elia Pharma. So that's something I would like to do, but we don't have bandwidth at the moment. But at least all these indications are covered by these patents. And next on this packed podcast, it's to the US to talk to Hubert Chen, Head of Clinical Development at Crystal Biotech. The company's busy. It's about to start a clinical trial for cystic fibrosis after the FDA accepted its investigational new drug application. And it's doing a lot of things on other fronts too. All right. So I guess the first question to get started is if you could give me 
some background on crystal biotech. Yeah, I mean, Crystal's a, a pretty unique company. Um, we started in 2016, and it was really founded around uh, a disease called epidermolysis bullosa. And our founder, Sumer Krishnan, she really had a passion for wanting to, to find um, some type of treatment for these patients who have basically no treatment options. Many people haven't heard of this disease. It's often referred to as the worst disease you've never heard of for that reason. And they essentially have mutations in collagen 7. So they have extreme skin fragility and their skin breaks down and they live their entire life with open wounds. And so from Crystal's inception, the companies really tried to reimagine how to do traditional drug development. And we've taken a particularly unique angle on that. We're moving our first gene therapy into epidermolysis bullosa, but we now have multiple programs in the clinic. It's just been a little over six years. We filed the BLA for our flagship program, which is what we call BVEC or Baramagene Kaburpavec. And our lead indication is in dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa. Um, however, we also have a pipeline of other programs that are looking to expand uh, upon that both in skin, but in other therapeutic areas. And so I think it's relatively unique that we've been able to get as far as we have in a relatively short amount of time and also develop the pipeline that we have. It's very rare, as you know, these days to have companies to take something from inception all the way to a pivotal trial. And so I think that's fairly unique, particularly in the time frame that it's been done. And I think that's a real credit to the people who came before me at Crystal that speaks to the culture at Crystal. You just had a press release came out recently on exactly what you're talking about. I think the, the one before that was um, KB407. I wonder if you could tell me anything about KB407 and how that works. We think that our phase three results in epidermolysis bullosa are clinical, in a sense, clinical validation of our HSV1 vector in the skin. And so we've now trying to explore other indications that we can take that into. What we've done is we've taken the same HSV1 vector and we've inserted, instead of the collagen 7 gene, we've put in CFTR, which is the gene that essentially causes cystic fibrosis. And we're delivering it inhaled in this case. And as you might know, the lungs lined with epithelium, very similar to the skin. So because we have effectiveness with topical therapy with our lead program, BVEC, in the skin, we think that it, that will translate to the lung. And for both of these conditions that you're working on, are they both inhaled and are they both just a one-time treatment or is it something that you need to take for life? That's a really good important point. Let me, let me fill you in a little bit on our vector. So a lot of gene therapy companies are using AAV or adeno-associated viruses or taking another approach and using non-viral vectors, usually lipid nanoparticles. We've taken a unique approach in that we're using an HSV1 vector. And HSV1 has particular properties that make it particularly attractive. And one of those things is it has a very large payload. And so you can fit very large genes in there. So example, collagen 7 is a very large gene and also CFTR is also a very large gene. Most other viral vectors can't carry the entire gene, so they have to edit it to make it smaller. 
but we can actually carry two full copies of that gene. The other thing about HSV that makes it very attractive as a vector is that two-thirds of the population has HSV. It's evolved with humans for thousands of years, and so it's evolved to become essentially immune evasive. It, many of us have it, but we don't even realize it. we're asymptomatic. And because it's immune evasive, that's allowed us to use the vector to redose. So a lot of other viral gene therapies, if you try and redose it, um, you'll get an immune reaction. And in fact, in many cases, you have to treat people, pre-treat people with steroids to redose them. And so that's a problem, you know, because one of the major issues with gene therapy is getting adequate gene transfer or sufficient gene transfer. And so you only got one shot at it usually. And so a lot of gene therapies are intended to be a, a, one, a quote, one and done. But we're taking a different approach in that because our vector is redosable, we can deliver it multiple times. That I think is a unique advantage. A lot of these gene therapies say they're redosable, but they haven't really demonstrated that in clinic. What's really unique about our program in epidermal lysis bullosa, that's a topical therapy. So it's put in a gel and people it's put directly on the wounds. But in that program, we're dosing weekly and we dosed for 26 weeks. So by redosing, we haven't seen any significant immunologic reactions with redosing which is really encouraging because we were able to do that on the skin. So we think we can take a similar strategy in the lung where we deliver it inhaled and then re-deliver it. And we think that that's gonna give us an advantage in terms of delivering more of the gene. HSV also is a non-integrating virus. So it does not insert itself into our chromosomes. What it does is it inserts the DNA into the nucleus of the cell and then the cell uses its own machinery to basically transcribe and translate the protein and express it with all the typical post-translational modifications that would naturally occur. But that piece of DNA that our vector inserts into the nucleus stays separate from your chromosome. So we say that it's episomal because it remains separate, if that makes sense. Does that mean with both of these conditions, are we looking towards sort of alleviating symptoms or are we looking towards curing those conditions? Well, it is treating the fundamental cause because these are genetic conditions. So in the case of cystic fibrosis and the CFTR gene, that gene is responsible for an ion channel that transports chloride across the cell membrane. And so it's responsible for maintaining adequate hydration in your airway, particularly in the mucus. So that's why patients with cystic fibrosis end up with lung disease because they have really thick, sticky mucus that they can't clear and then they get infections and lose lung function and eventually need a lung transplant. And so by delivering the gene, which then subsequently produces the protein, that should restore the airway hydration that they need in the normal type of mucociliary clearance that you would see in a healthy individual. And we've seen that strategy in some other therapies recently in CFs. There's been modulators that have proved that, in a sense, there's some patients with cystic fibrosis that have mutations that cause a dysfunctional protein. So the modulators will correct or modulate those dysfunctional proteins to make them functional. But there are certain patients with cystic fibrosis that have mutations where they don't make the protein at all. And so the modulators don't work in those patients because there's no protein for them to fix. 
And then in that case, you really need to deliver the entire gene so that they can actually produce the protein because they're, they're missing it entirely. That's what it really attracted me to this program was that this mode of therapy will address those remaining patients with CF who don't have any other treatment options currently. And as far as DEB is concerned, I guess you just got the announcement from the FDA granting priority review designation. What does that mean for the company and more importantly, I guess, for people that have this condition? Well, I think we've been really encouraged by the results we see in phase three. And I think the patients that have participated have been very satisfied. And I think it's a huge unmet need for this population not to have any treatments. And so in the U.S. currently, there are no improved therapies. So as you can imagine, patients are really in need of something. And so we're working hard to get something approved as quickly as possible. And so what's the timeline on that in terms of this being generally available? Uh, it would be next year because it takes some time for the FDA to review it. Are you also working on getting this approved in other jurisdictions as well? Yes, we're also looking at, beginning to look at other countries. You were mentioning about how this is applicable with cystic fibrosis as well. I imagine that it would be applicable to a lot of other conditions as well? It would be applicable to other genetic conditions that are monogenic where we can deliver a certain gene that would replace their either dysfunctional or missing gene. But it's also applicable for non-genetic conditions because we can deliver not just any gene, but we can deliver genes for any proteins. So you, it can be viewed as a genetic therapy where we're delivering any kind of therapeutic that might be, for example, like an antibody or things like that. We could potentially do that. We haven't uh, gotten to that point, but the platform that we have is not limited to just genetic diseases. I think one of the things that's pretty unique about Crystal is that it's really a soup to nuts company. One thing we didn't mention is that we do all our manufacturing in-house, and I think that's also pretty unique. A lot of small companies farm out that type of manufacturing or they contract it out. I think what's really attractive is that we're really dedicated to the space, this vector, and we have a whole manufacturing facility and have been working on this for years. And so we really know how to work with this particular vector. And now it's to our new feature here on the Beyond Biotech podcast, and it's a weekly look at some of what's happening on the financial side of things with JLL. And our first chat is with Robert Coughlin. I was going to say good morning, but because of time zones and people listening to the podcast at different times, I'll just say hi, Robert. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for having me. You know, what I thought would be interesting in talking about today would be what everybody wants to talk about in the life sciences is what's going on with Wall Street. Well, the reality is there's well over 200 companies right now in the biotech index that are trading below cash. And that just seems crazy. What are these companies going to do? Well, I can't help but think, you know, from a historical perspective, you know, I had you know, the pleasure of serving as the, of being the CEO of the Massachusetts Biotechnology Council from uh, 2007 all the way to, you know, 2020. And I, when I think of the times that we went through between 2008 and 2012, Wall Street went away. You know, there were no uh, IPOs taking place and we didn't know what was going to happen. The small companies were all panicking. But what happened is, you know, the folks in life sciences, they solve unmet medical need. They're resourceful. They figure out a way to accomplish things. 
they started partnering with the pharma companies. Biotech companies needed more money because they couldn't get follow-on rounds. The Wall Street went away. There were no IPOs. And Big Pharma had company uh, products that were coming off patent. And they weren't creating new drugs quick enough at the time. So they decided that they would take their money that they used to put into high throughput screening and invest that money into biotech companies. And in a sense, we invented external innovation. States like Massachusetts and California did really, really well during the down economy because big companies were coming here to invest into all of these small, nimble biotech companies. So now you fast forward to today. You have over 200 companies, and the only two things that are different now are that, one, the VCs have already raised large funds, so there will be 100 new companies created in the next 12 to 24 months based on what venture capital funds have raised prior to Wall Street crash. And more importantly, the large pharma companies have more money than ever that they can allocate towards external innovation. So you're seeing it already every day. You're reading about a pharma company that's doing a deal with a mid-sized company, uh, typically publicly traded. And I predict that you're going to see more and more and more of it happen. I was originally thinking that, you know, around the JP Morgan conference in, in, in next January, that's when you'd see this flurry of companies doing deals. But it's already starting to happen. And that's a good thing. Is it unfortunate that Wall Street uh, isn't rewarding these companies the way we think they should? Yes. But the reality is there's plenty of money out there. It's just going to come from a different direction. And as I always say, good science will continue to be rewarded because the alternative isn't acceptable. Patients want uh, these companies to solve unmet medical need, and that's going to continue to happen. Great. Thanks for that, Robert. And we will catch up with either you or perhaps Travis McCready, who will be the regular guest next week. Robert Coughlin leads the New England Life Science Practice Group for JLL, a global commercial real estate services company shaping the future of real estate for a better world. Robert has more than 14 years of experience in the representation of lab GMP manufacturing and technology space. He's also a past president and CEO of MassBio, where he advanced Massachusetts leadership and advancement of the life sciences industry. And that's it. We, or more to the point, you, made it through another podcast. Hopefully next week is a little more sedate and I don't have to consider relocating to avoid building alarms. But right now, I think I have to go and book some flights for NLS days, which is happening in Sweden at the end of next month. Busy times. Which I guess is better than not busy times. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this week's show and that you will have a great week ahead and will join us next week in September for another Biotech.